This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Good. Come to the um, passage in a minute, but I wanted to just um, say a big hi and uh, welcome and sort of greetings from the university where I am up in the FCH camper up Swinton Lane, uh, sort of the other side of Cheltenham, but it's a, um, a good place to be at the moment for me because God is doing stuff there. And it's an interesting place to um, to see what God's doing among students particularly. Quite a challenging time to be at university, but certainly a place where God is at work and is using people. It's kind of a funny time of year for me because we've had Freshers' Week and now uni sort of begins proper, lectures begin this week. And it's one of those sort of times where I notice quite a lot of staff uh, get haircuts. It's kind of, you know, the time when, you know, ready for the new term, haircuts. And I heard this really quite amusing story of uh, a guy who goes into a, um, a barber shop in America. And he uh, he's sitting there in the chair and the barber's about to get to work on him. And uh, the barber says, you know... In a moment, the dumbest boy in the whole of the town is going to come in, and I'm going to show you why. The guy thinks, okay. So it's just about to start when this kid comes in, and the, uh, the barber says, watch this. So he takes out of his pocket two quarters and a dollar, and he goes over to the kid, and he says, so pick one from either hand. Pick one of the two. And the kid takes the two quarters. goes back to the guy in the chair, kid walks out, he says, you see, he always picks the smaller amount of money, it's silly, why does he do that, it's crazy. Anyway, the, um, the guy finishes his haircut, goes out, and he sees the kid coming out of the ice cream shop, and he goes over to him and says, um, why, what, why are you doing that, why, you, you know that a dollar is more than two quarters, which is sort of 50p equivalent. He goes, yeah, but as soon as I pick the dollar, the game's over. <laughs> Clever kid. And actually, we're going to see how clever Jesus is at the beginning of this story. And we'll pick that up in a moment. I know that you've been thinking a little bit about what it means to be a disciple and being a disciple. And me, when I think about disciples, I think of, you know, the key disciples like Peter, James and John. And I think back to that moment when Jesus actually asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter comes up with that revelation from God that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One from God. And then Jesus goes on to say, yes, and on that kind of revelation on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And I was thinking about that, thinking, you know what, that's an amazing thing to have happened. What is it about Peter that Jesus saw in him that said, I want to build my church on that? And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking it must go back to the first life-transforming experience that Peter had with Jesus. And that's what I want to look at this morning. 
from Luke chapter 5. And just before we read it, I want to give you a little context because people think sometimes that this is when the first experience of Jesus happened for Peter. But actually, if you read back in other Gospels, especially John, you'll realize that Peter had kind of been around. He'd come across Jesus before, perhaps even heard him, maybe even sort of acquaintance with him, but he hadn't really encountered him in any detail. And that's quite a useful thing just to remember as we go into this story, because lots of people are around church for a while. They're on the fringe, perhaps they get to know a community of believers, they get to know someone, they kind of socially with one or two people. But it's not until they have a life-changing experience with the risen Jesus that things begin to change, that suddenly discipleship begins to kick in. But there are three key factors in the story I'm going to read that I'm going to pick up on, which I think contribute towards what a disciple really is. So let's see this passage from uh, Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read it to you. And as we read it, let's try and get inside the score and think about what Peter was feeling as this happened. So Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, same as the Sea of Galilee, same thing, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but... Because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats to so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all the companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men and women. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. Let's pray just for a minute. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this amazing encounter Peter had with you, Jesus. And we ask that as we look at it today, that you would come by your Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you, Holy Spirit, would bring alive what you want to say to us this morning and plant your seeds deep in our hearts, that they would grow and bear fruit. So be with us now, Lord Jesus. Spirit, come and teach us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to um, begin with a picture, which is uh, Sea of Galilee, hopefully uh, unchanged a lot since Jesus' day. And I want to just give you a bit of geography, a bit of context and setting, because actually it is significant. Why? Because Jesus knows what he's doing. He's very clever, actually. And what happens is Jesus is standing by the shore, waiting there, and all the crowds are kind of pressing in on him. And he can't really communicate the word of God very effectively. So he realizes two things. One, that your voice travels much more clearly over water. We all know that. So he thinks, perhaps I can get out into a boat. But also, if you think 
about the geography of it. The Sea of Galilee is like a series of little inlets. And he would be able, in that kind of little inlet or bay, a bit like that, to have people standing together close enough to be able to hear him and to get the word of God effectively. So he's aware of the geography, he's aware of how he can communicate. But then he does something else which is also very significant, and that's to see Peter's boat. Now, I'm not a fisherman, I don't quite know how it works, but I'm sure that Jesus realized that Peter, being a fisherman, would be the kind of person who he could enlist to help him. And notice here that Peter actually allows Jesus to use probably one of his, if not the most prized possession of all fishermen, the boat. But Jesus, interestingly, turns that around later. Because if you think about it, what Jesus is doing is saying, if you help me with my work, I'm going to help you with yours a bit later. And that's a really interesting thing, because sometimes we need to make ourselves vulnerable and say, actually, I need something that you've got. And friends can come and help you. Happens to me a lot at university. I'm not a techie. I don't know very much about computers. I just use them with my job. But if I find a techie, someone who knows a lot about it, I can actually get them to help me. And that's happened many times with people in situations where you actually need something that they've got which can help you. And through that, you build relationship. Isn't that right? So that's the kind of context, the beginning of what happens. And just imagine Peter listening on the shore, even perhaps in the boat with Jesus. We're not quite sure. But he hears what Jesus says, his teaching. We don't know what Jesus taught at this stage. But that is the context. And then the encounter happens. We get two amazing exchanges with Jesus and Peter. And I want to get inside those and really unpack those. Because in that, we find three key things that I think are about discipleship and about what Jesus found in Peter through this experience that made him think, I can build my church on this guy and what he's got. So really important stuff. After they had that kind of initial teaching experience, Jesus then says to Peter something different. Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, beautiful imagery here. Too often we stay in the shallows, don't we, with Jesus. Too easy just to kind of play around there and not really get stuck in to go deeper. And this is a metaphor in many ways for the whole of life. Jesus says to all of us, come on, put out a bit deeper. Let's get out into the deep water because I've got lots to show you. I've got things I want to share with you. I want to share my heart with you. I want to show you what my kingdom purposes are for you. And that real principle of going into deep water is kind of almost a physical thing, but it's happening in the spiritual life as Jesus takes Peter a bit further out, takes him away, perhaps out of his comfort zone, away from the shore, into deep water where he can do the real work. But something happens here which I think is even more significant. Yes, they put out into deep water, and he says they're going to let down their nets for a catch. But Peter, uh, he's not really enamored with that. He's not really very excited about that. Why? Because he's done it all before, it seems. Now, I'm assuming that this is in morning time, and it's most likely that Peter has worked hard all night 
And he's been there. He's done it. We've worked all night, Lord. We've done it. And we didn't catch a thing. So what is he going to do? He has a choice here. Is he going to go with Jesus further out into deep water? Or is he actually going to stay safe and not do what Jesus says? He tells Jesus the truth. Yes, we have worked hard all night and not caught anything. But because you say so. The key phrase in that sentence, because you say so, I will let down the nets and we will do this. Now that is the first thing and the key thing. Peter trusts Jesus. He actually says, I'm going to believe what you say. I'm going to obey and do what you say because I trust you. There's something in Peter that says, this guy is trustworthy and I'm going to put my faith in you and I'm going to push out into deep water and I'm going to let down my nets for a catch. This is the first step in some ways. It's a step of faith. It's a step of trust. He's seen enough to know that Jesus can be trusted. He's heard his words. He's looked at the man and he thinks, you know what? May not be the most logical thing because I've done it all before and I've done it my way, but because Jesus, you say so, I'm going to step out and I'm going to go and do that. And that to me is what is happening first in this exchange between Jesus and Peter. Peter actually trusts. He puts his faith in Christ and he puts out into the deep water. Now, I think we have to start to apply that to us here. Can we trust Jesus? What is the level of your relationship with Jesus? Even when here, Jesus seems to be saying something which goes against our own experience. We often do things our own way. You know, they all say, well, if all else fails, pray. We often do it our own way, don't we, and try and work it all out our own way. And, you know, nothing wrong necessarily in that. Jesus doesn't diss him for, you know, fishing all night. He just says, let's do it one more time, but do it with me. Do it my way. And maybe something different is going to happen. Peter's been trying hard in his own strength, laboring all night with no results. But this time, Jesus is with him as he heads out into deep water. There's a major difference. And perhaps with us sometimes, we need to ask Jesus into the situation earlier on and then we'll find that things happen a little bit differently. Um, Howard said a little bit in the introduction about my time in Oman. Um, going to Oman was not an easy decision. Uh, you need to know that obviously um, I'm married, I have a wife, Joe, and two kids. And when we went out to Oman, it was a fairly big step. I was actually working at the university, interestingly enough, here in Cheltenham, um, in a different department, in the language teaching department. And I really felt God had called us into mission, into, into kind of cross-cultural overseas mission. And I've been looking for a job, obviously trying to find a way to get into the nation where I felt God was calling us to. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but it was uh, quite a miraculous 
kind of stumbling upon the job which I managed to get in the university in Muscat, Oman, in the Gulf, in the Middle East. It's about um, four or five hours away from Dubai. If you know Dubai, you go down around the Arabian Peninsula, Muscat's the next country along. And it's, uh, it's something that had been on our heart for a long time. But what happened is that we were praying that God would open up a door for us and we trusted that God would take care of us. And you know, my kids were pretty small. They were one and two and a half when we went out. Uh, my wife is blonde and going into a Muslim nation where nearly all women cover. Uh, they don't cover their faces, but they um, cover every other part of their body in long black abayas and headscarves. And uh, we didn't quite know what to expect. We'd never been there before. Uh, and we decided that actually this was what God wanted us to do. So we, we went out um, through the, the job that I had with the university and a bit of fear and intrepidation. We weren't quite sure how it was all going to work out. Interestingly, after about four or five months we'd been there, I remember we were driving, this is one clear etch in my memory, driving along there um, and I turned to Joe and I said, so how are we doing here? How's it been? You know, we've been here a few months now. What do you feel about this decision to go and work in this nation? And she said, you know what, I'm really happy. And what happened there was actually I felt a sense of really God had vindicated himself. It was like we'd stepped out, we'd pushed out into deep water. We'd trusted that God would sort ourselves out and sort our situation out in that Muslim nation. And he had done. You know what, God can be trusted. We can trust in Jesus. He will take us places we sometimes find it difficult to go. You know, it wasn't easy for Peter in that situation to swallow his pride and do what Jesus said. But actually, the result was good. And what happened? Like in our situation, we received the blessing of God. God blessed us as a family. We had an amazing time. We were there nine years and God, through us, was able to plant a church there. And what happens here for Peter is he gets that miraculous catch of fish, more than he could ever imagine. There was so much in their net, so many fish in their net, that the nets began to break. And he had to call his friends to come and help them. It was overwhelming. So, first thing to take out of this story is that we can trust Jesus. Maybe sometimes we need to ask ourselves, what are we trusting Jesus for at this stage? Are we praying for something? Are we going to step out with something? It may be in small ways, in little ways. And I'm challenged at the moment. I've been um, going to some conferences over the summer and uh, heard a guy called Robbie Dawkins from um, the vineyard in the USA speaking at a conference I went to. And some astonishing stories of stepping out in faith to pray for healing and seeing God show up in fantastic ways. And that's a challenge to me. Occasionally, I need to do that and say, I'm going to pray for you for healing. I'm going to actually share that word. I'm going to actually do something where it's a bit more risky, perhaps. We need to trust God and say, you know, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. And you know what? God loves that. He loves to see people who will step out and trust him and take him at his word. But how does Peter respond when this amazing catch of fish comes into the boat? Yes, they've got it in the boat. The boats are beginning to sink. He's there. He gets his mates over to help him. And he's astonished at the catch of fish. That's right. 
like all the others there. But something else happens in this encounter which takes it really to another level for Peter. He experiences conviction of sin. Something which is actually quite unusual in this culture and in our day. Too easily we don't see that. But here, Peter is aware of his own sinfulness. Verse 9 says this, When Peter saw this, obviously the catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So what essentially Jesus seems to bring out of Peter is repentance. That is the key thing that happens next. What goes on is something quite Jewish in a way. Let me try and unpack it for us a little, because it seems a strange thing to Peter to do. It does to my ears anyway, maybe to 21st century ears. What goes on here? Well, I think that Jesus is displaying a kind of prophetic awareness. What's going on is Peter has obviously seen that Jesus knows where the fish is, because he tells him where to let down the nets for a catch. And that in the Jewish culture is associated with a prophet, someone who knows and sees things that others can't see. So there's a prophetic kind of seeing from Jesus. Now, prophets were known as people who stood close to God. The history of the prophets in the Old Testament that Peter knew as a Jew was those who stood next to God, who spoke for God, who called the people to holiness of life. That was the kind of prophetic role. So what happens is Jesus is kind of displaying that. And the understanding that Peter has is that prophets are holy, they demonstrate the holiness of God, and God doesn't hang around sinners. That was the difference that was going to be shown in Jesus. Because in the Old Testament it was God very much, even though there were signs that he wanted to be closer to his people, it's very much the holiness of God and that sin was a separate, separate thing. And that sin separated the people from God. They needed to have a sacrifice to make that right. And Peter is suddenly aware that he's in the presence of holiness. And he basically says, I'm going to be exposed here Perhaps he's a bit ashamed of his former life and what he's done, his own sinfulness. And so he says, get away. I'm going to be exposed here, and I'm a sinful man. He's aware of his own sinfulness. It's a bit like Isaiah in the Old Testament, when the angel came and put the coal on his lip, and he said, I'm a man who live among unclean people. I'm a sinful man. And that, whenever, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we are aware of our own sinfulness. And some of those things which we got away with before when we were younger Christians, sometimes now, God puts his finger on those and says, actually, you need to deal with that. I don't like you watching that. I don't like you seeing that. I don't like you doing that. And there's a kind of closer relationship that Jesus wants with us, isn't it? And so Peter is kind of aware of his own sinfulness. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And perhaps he expects Jesus to reject him. 
because he's sinful and Jesus is holy. And that was perhaps the predictable response, wasn't it? Because God perhaps as holy was separate. And so in some senses, Peter's expecting that rejection. But that's not what happens, is it? Jesus changes the kind of the tapes in his head. And he says, you know what? Don't be afraid. That's a lovely response, isn't it, from Jesus? Because he sees that Peter is basically repenting. He's aware of his own sinfulness. I am a sinful. He admits he's done stuff wrong. That's what's going on here. And what happens for Peter is it's a, it's a pivotal moment because he experiences God's grace and he responds. Because what's true is that Jesus accepts what Peter is doing. He accepts his repentance. He accepts his confession of his own sinfulness. And this is a real struggle in some ways in our culture today because so often, and I see this at university and elsewhere, people don't acknowledge their own sinfulness. We see that in public life. We see that in our own experience perhaps with our friends. People know deep down they've done stuff wrong, but they're not willing to admit it. And too often it remains hidden and uncovered. And it's quite an unusual thing when someone will actually admit. It takes the, the Spirit of God to come in and actually show them they've done something wrong. I think one example in public life I can point to is um, Jonathan Aitken, who was the MP, the politician, who was convicted of perjury, ended up in prison. And there he met Christ. He came to faith and he realized he'd done wrong because there was an honesty among the prisoners. I spent a, um, uh, a month in Bristol Pit Prison, Hawthorne Prison, I hasten to add, with the chaplain there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I led three people to Christ in a month. Reason why is because there people know their own sinfulness. They know they've messed up, they've been convicted or they're waiting for that conviction to happen and, yeah, they know what's gone wrong. And in that way, they can come readily to Christ. They know they need his forgiveness. And in some sense, it's easy to preach the gospel there. But often in culture, people are not willing to admit they have done stuff wrong. But what happens here is we see a wonderful kind of exemplification of the kindness of God. What happens here is Romans 2. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Goodness of God that leads us to remain. Peter didn't deserve that miraculous catch of fish, did he? No. But Jesus gave it to him anyway. He's saying, Look, with me, we can do far more than you ever ask or think of. And that's the goodness of God. It's a blessing. Amazing catch of fish. He's set up for life, perhaps. And what happens is that that produces the response of repentance in Peter. And my, my, my sense is sometimes with us is that it takes the goodness, the grace of God for us to realize that we are needed to be humble and actually accept and to say we've messed up and we need his forgiveness. And the thing about these kind of things I'm trying to draw out is yes, they're part of this experience, the life-changing experience that Peter has with Jesus, but they are ongoing lifestyle things. 
because trusting Jesus is not just a one-time experience now for Peter. It goes on for the rest of his days. This is the beginning. He first really trusted Jesus at this moment, but he goes on doing it. He keeps on trusting it. And he, of all people, knows what it is to mess up. Do you remember the second time that Jesus helped him to get another amazing catch of fish? Again, it was on the Sea of Galilee. Again, it was perhaps in the morning. And again, it was after he'd messed up when he denied Jesus three times. They got the fish out in the lake. And that was, again, the grace of God, the goodness of God, and repentance followed. But Jesus reinstated Peter because he knew that Peter was a humble man. And that humility is what builds a church. He can build a church on humility and on awareness of our own sinfulness. And that's a, it's a lifestyle, isn't it? Confession before God when we mess up is an ongoing lifestyle thing. I mess up all the time, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. But what happens is I come back to God as often as I can, as often as I remember. And I say, God, I've messed up. I need your forgiveness. Wash me clean, cleanse me, and help me move on with you and in my journey towards being more like Jesus, more holy. And that's really what we're doing here, is seeing how these things that happened in Peter's life continued to be relevant and part of his life. I was trying to think about a way in which I can illustrate this, and I haven't really got one because it's not very easy to um, exemplify this apart from what I was saying in uh, the prison situation. But I came across this uh, kind of old fable, which I think does express something of the importance of what happens here with Peter. It's a story of a young woman who died and went to heaven, and her life on earth had been full of sin and arrived, she arrived at the pearly gates and she was told she could only be admitted under one condition, that she find the thing on earth that God values above all others. So she goes off, it's a, it's a story, it's a fable, it's not real, um, but it brings out a particular point. So the first thing she did was to go and find a person who died for their faith. And she went off and found this person who sacrificed their life for Jesus and she brought back a drop of blood for that person and offered it and the answer was no this is not what God values above all else so she went off again and found the sweat from the brow of a man who preached the gospel in the deepest darkest jungle he was the one who perhaps God valued above all else and she took that drop of sweat to the gates and again the answer came back no that's not what God values above all else so she was disconsolate and she went to sit in a square and she was about to give up and in the square there was a fountain and the child a child was beautiful and innocent and was playing in the water of the fountain and at that moment a man rode up on horseback and dismounted to get a drink at the fountain and he looked into the water of the fountain and saw the reflection of his own face. It was hardened and weathered. And he suddenly realized that he'd wasted the life that God had given him. And at that moment, he experienced conviction of sin. And tears of repentance began to flow down his cheeks. 
And the young woman took one of those tears and brought it to the gates of heaven. And there was great joy among the saints because this is the gift that God values above all else, the tears of repentance. And I think that's a really helpful thing to show us, that when we humble ourselves before God, when someone admits they've messed up, we admit we've messed up, God loves that. And he runs towards us, doesn't he, as in the prodigal son. You know, I was talking at the beginning about the love of the Father. Well, here's an example of how God responds to someone who says, you know what, I've messed up. And he runs towards them and gathers them in his arms. And that's the love of the Saviour. That's the love of the Father. And so, don't be slow to come to God and to say, you know what, I need to... I need your washing, I need your cleansing, I need you to help me. Because that's what Peter did, and that needs to be our lifestyle. So again, let's get back to the story. Jesus says, don't be afraid. He's not going to condemn him. He's not going to reject him. But what he does is something even more amazing. And this is the final thing which is so special about this story. What does he do? He gives him a new purpose. He basically changes around what has happened in his life. He says, from now on, you're not going to catch fish anymore. We're going to catch people, men and women. We're going to do something which is a kingdom purpose. And he basically gives him a whole new vision for his future. Not to say fishing is wrong. It's great. Nothing against fishing. But it's actually something even more that God has for Peter something exciting, something amazing, and a different future for him. And notice as he relates his past to his future, he doesn't say, you know, you are going to be a carpenter and kind of make things for Jesus. No, that wouldn't have been relevant to Peter. Actually, it's about taking something that he knows something about, catching fish, catching people this time, and making it in a new way. He uses, he relates his past to his present in the method, but He gives him that amazing kind of breadth. It's not just about catching fish. It's about a whole new kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. And that's a real challenge for us because we perhaps need to ask ourselves, just like Peter had to ask himself, what is is my purpose? Now, one of the first things we're going to do in our student alpha course is address the question, do I have a purpose? What is the purpose of my life? You know what, Jesus gives us a purpose. When Jesus comes into our life, he's got something for us to do. I believe all of us have a purpose. Perhaps we've never really asked what our kingdom purpose is. What is it that God wants you to do in his kingdom? And I I really believe for me, as as, um, Hal was saying, that God has brought me to the university at this particular time. You know, it's a real challenge. As I was saying to um, someone else in coffee earlier before, uh, this time for students is a real challenge. You know, there's a couple of Christian students I saw on Friday who came into where I was. And they, um, they'd been at Freshers' Fair. I'd seen one of them at Freshers' Fair, and I, I know her. Um, I'd met her before and uh, knew she was a Christian. And I said, oh, how, how's it going? How's the week been? You know, um, it doesn't normally happen at Freshers' Fair where people ask you how you are. Um, they just give you stuff and say, you know, Domino's Pizza or this nightclub or that nightclub. And uh, she was caught back and she began to cry. 
I said, gosh, what's wrong? You know, I've just kind of asked you how you are. She said, oh, it's been, been a bad week. So I said, I can't talk to you now. I'm doing lots of other things. So I took her over to the Christian Union stand. I said, connect with the Christians. They've got cake. Have a piece of cake. <laughs> Feel better. And come and see me tomorrow. So she came in with her friend. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I was out with my friends on uh, one of the nights this week. And um, she, as a Christian, wants to be in the world, but not of the world. So she's living in a flat with other students. There's another Christian with her, fortunately. And there are two of them in a flat of six with four other not Christians. And she was out with them, having a drink, and someone spiked her drink. So she went to the loo and didn't realize what had happened and then when she got out, she fell down the stairs and she was like completely out of it. She hadn't realized what had happened to her. It never, never happened to her before. And so she um, was taken home and they looked after her, fortunately. Um, and she's okay. She's fine. But it really threw her. You know, imagine that happening to you. And so as we talked it through, I said, you know, this is an area where you've really got to know God with you and Jesus with you in this situation. It's not an easy. She knows God has brought her to the university for this time, but she's got to live with all the other students around her. And she's showing that she's different. She doesn't get drunk. She's not bringing boys back to the flat like some of the other ones are doing. And what's going on is they're trying to live a countercultural Christian life. And it's not easy. It's not easy because she doesn't want to completely divorce herself and end up in a Christian ghetto. She wants to be in the world and be able to share her faith and her life with them. So that's the challenge of what it is to be a Christian at uni. And I believe God gives each of us a purpose, whether it be to be a student at uni, whether it be in your job, whether it for me as a chaplain in the university, for Howard, for, for what God has called him to do here in this church at God First. God has got purposes for each of us. And it's a question of discovering those. And wrestle with God about it. You have dreams, I'm sure, many of you. You want to do something in God's kingdom. Now's the time to perhaps pray some of those kingdom plans into reality and see what God has for us. Because that's what Jesus did with Peter, didn't he? He basically said, now you're going to be an evangelist. You're going to go and catch men and women. And how does Peter react to Jesus' kind of call, the charge? He responds with that third thing. Yes, trust we've seen, repentance we've seen, but there's one more thing that I think, perhaps above all else, that Jesus sees in Peter that kind of he does. It's not something he says, it's what does he do. What happens, Peter follows Jesus with total commitment. He leaves behind. They pull their boats up onto the shore. They leave their nets and they follow Jesus. No turning back. They're heading out there and this is it. My livelihood's finished I'm doing something completely new. I'm following Jesus because he's given me a new vision, a new purpose, and I'm totally committed to that. And they leave everything, the old life, the old ways, and something new in following Jesus. No turning back. I want to um, read to you from uh, one of my favorite commentators, Tom Wright. And uh, these are really good books if you come across them. They basically have a little section on each 
uh, particular part of the gospel. This one is Luke. And he writes this about this story. He says, this kind of story helps. We need to get inside. Become Peter for a few moments. Pause and ponder what you normally do, day after day. And then imagine Jesus suddenly appearing, asking for your help with his own work, and then telling you to do something in your own line of work, which seems pointless, a waste of time and effort. You do it, perhaps grumbling under your breath, but suddenly everything clicks into place. Everything succeeds on a scale you'd never dreamed of. What's going on? How did it happen? Feel the sense of awe, perhaps terror even, as you come to terms with the power of Jesus. Then feel that sense of terror increase as he turns to you with what looks like a question in his eyes that proves to be a command. You and I are going to be working together from now on. And you realize you have no choice. If this man isn't worth following, nobody is. Great words there about the story. And I, I, I do really feel that here, this is the key as to what Jesus was looking for in Peter. Yes, he's impulsive. Yes, he makes mistakes. Yes, he's spontaneous. But he's out there. He goes for it. He's the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches. And it's filled with the spirits bold and 3,000 come to faith. That's the kind of man that Peter is, that Jesus sees. But it's the qualities in there. It's this total commitment. It's full on. I'm going for it. No turning back. No holds barred. This is it. I'm going with you, Jesus. And you know what? It's again a lifestyle. It goes on as we get older as Christians. You know, I've been Christian for many years now, but God still raises the bar. It's the next step. It's the next thing. It's the next level of commitment. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to humbly commit yourself to my way again? And God brings those challenges to us. He wants to see us move closer to him in all that we do because he has plans for us. So come back to that initial question. What is it in Peter that Jesus sees? What is it that he wants from Peter and he's going to draw out of him? It's the trust, it's the faith. Yes, it's that awareness of his own sinfulness and also that total commitment to follow him. And that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Repentance, faith, trust, commitment the cost of discipleship. When I lead people to Christ, it's about A, B, C, isn't it? Admit, believe, and commit. It's the same thing. Admit your own sin, believe in Jesus, and count the cost and commit your life to Jesus. That's what the heart of the gospel is. And that's what we see here in this story. The heart of the gospel. Trust, faith, repentance, and total commitment to Jesus. And that's what he calls us to. I need to stop, but um, I want to finish with a story which hopefully bears out this whole sense of total commitment. And it comes from several hundred years ago. You may have heard of the Moravians. Moravia is an area now in the modern-day Czech Republic, and it's been a kind of place where God has moved in different ways through the centuries. And in the 1700s, there was a wave of persecution on then the church there, which was Catholic, and many of them fled to, uh, from there to this area of Moravia. And some of them fell away, but those who didn't kind of found solace together in a small community in nearby Germany. And they ended up in a property of a count, Count von Zinzendorf, Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf had a deep desire to follow Christ 
in a radical way. And as the Moravians moved into his property, he developed a relationship with them. He gave them a place to stay, like political asylum. And he realized these ones had a real devotion to Christ. And he wanted to join them. So they began this community of great devotion. Now, what happened on August the 13th, 1727, is that Zindensorf called a special communion service for them together as a community. And during that time, God showed up. God poured out his blessing upon them. And someone said this at the time, no one present could tell exactly what happened on that Wednesday morning at that special communion service. They hardly knew if they'd been on earth or in heaven. God showed up in an amazing way. And another counter that morning reads this, loud weeping and cries to heaven nearly drowned out the singing. The service did not end in Taz, Ludwig described it later, true communion of heart had descended upon them. They became one in spirit, became one in the spirit of Christ. And from that communion service started 24-7 prayer. Many of you have heard of that? Yeah, it's a movement across the world where people pray over a solid period of time, one after the other, 24-7. And their prayer meetings never stopped after that. They increased in both commitment and fervency. But as they were praying there, you know what God called them to do? He said, I want you to go out into the mission field. I want you to go and preach the gospel. It's not just about the meeting. The meeting's great, but there's more. God sends us out and calls us out to commit and to do what he wants us to do. And so two people, let me get their names here, David Nitschman and Leonard Dober decided as two young Moravian missionaries to go to an island in the Caribbean called St. Thomas. And their dedication was incredible. In order to win the souls, because this was an island for slaves, no one else could go there unless you were a slave. So in order to win the slaves, they were willing to sell themselves into slavery for the rest of their lives. And they found a way to get there. They basically said, we will go and be slaves there for the rest of our lives. And it says here, as the ship pulled away from the docks, it said that they called out to their loved ones on the shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. These mission ministry, missionaries ministered in ways that were you know, hardly imaginable, in horrible conditions. But the end of the story is this. The requirement to be one of these missionaries was nothing short of total commitment. And that's what I want to end on today. I just want to call us again to total commitment again to Jesus. He is the one who's died for us, as Hal was saying. The cross is where we see the demonstration of God's love. So should we stand? And let's ask the Spirit to come and to bring to our hearts what God wants to speak to us today. There are many things in that story, many things that God may have said to you. Let's just wait for a moment. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.